The reading is from Luke's Gospel, chapter 7, beginning at verse 36, and it can be found in the Church Bibles on page 1036. And at the end of this, at the end of the chapter, I'll read a couple of verses from John's Gospel, from page 1066. So this is Luke, chapter 7, verse 36. Now, one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him. So he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. When a woman who had lived a sinful life in that town learns that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster jar of perfume, and as she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. Two men owed money to a certain moneylender. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he cancelled the debts of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt cancelled. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. Then he turns towards the woman and said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not pour oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many, her many sins have been forgiven, for she loved much. But he who has been forgiven little, loves little. Then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. The other guests began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. And two verses from John's Gospel, chapter 3, beginning at verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Good morning. Nice to see you. Let's pray together that God would say something to every single one of us this morning, particularly about hope. Let's pray. Father God, thank you that Jesus came to bring hope. And we reach out to you this morning asking that you would sow a seed of hope in our hearts. 
take the thoughts and words I prepared and use them to open the scriptures to bring us close to you, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Quite a few years ago now, the family Charkham went off on holiday. Mum, dad, and a nine-year-old and eleven-year-old. And we were going to have an extended holiday together. I can't remember exactly how long. I remember it was in Australia. I think it was about a month. And it seemed to me this was an opportunity to try and pep up our spiritual life together and uh, get our act together. So we arrived in Melbourne, and I went off to this Christian bookshop looking for some reading which would inspire us in our five-minute devotional time every day. You always start off with good intentions, and that's a good thing. And I found a book on the shelves. I meant to bring it with me this morning, but I left it at the vicarage. It's called Courageous Christians, Devotional Stories for Family Reading. And I thought, just a ticket. So I bought it. And on day one, I opened it up, page one. Actually, I think I handed it to the children and said, you can choose which character we do. So the first, time, first character they picked, and it was all about a Dutch girl, and she was growing up very happily in her family home, and life was good. And then the Nazi occupation came, and it was not good. And she was swept off to a concentration camp, and it was a story about that. Okay, day two, I handed the book to my daughter and said, you choose. And it was a story of a man with a mission. He married his sweetheart, and together they had four children, and they set sail for out of somewhere or other. And needless to say, his wife died, and then his children died one by one, and he stuck it out. And that was that. And then on day three, I handed the book to my son, and he opened it up, and he gave it to Daddy, read that chapter. And uh, we read it, and it was about a nice family, a vicarage family, and the father of the vicar took out his son onto the lake for a sailing expedition, and the son brought his best friend. And then there was a great storm, and um, the boat capsized, and they only had one rescue ring, and the father, in a moment of dilemma, who knew his son was saved, didn't know if a friend was, threw the ring to the friend, and the son died. And at this point, my son, aged 10 or 11, <coughs> looked up and asked, Daddy, doesn't anything good happen to you when you become a Christian? <laughs> and I, I think that question was really on it. it it's the key question, does anything good happen to us when we become a Christian? Evidently, a great many people don't think so. And if they don't think the answer is no, they at least don't believe that the answer is yes, or they would be swelling the churches and worshiping the Lord. For many people, the assumption is, if I let God near my life, I just know he'll ruin it. Or if he'll not ruin it, he'll at least try to control it. Or if not control it, he'll want to contain it. And if not contain it, he'll want to have influence over it. And that's just not for me. And there's no end of books that articulate this kind of viewpoint. Christopher Hitchens wrote a book not so long ago, God is not great. Religion poisons everything. 
And the recently retired John Humphreys in his book wrote, notice what Hitchens says, not just lots of things or even most things or even almost everything, it's everything. Mr. Hitchens is not a man to do things by half. Religion, he says, is violent, irrational, intolerant, allied to racism and tribalism and bigotry, invested in ignorance and hostile to free inquiry, contemptuous of women and coercive towards children. And, says Humphreys, it probably gives you dandruff and bad breath too. <laughs> and the thing is that people outside the church, and actually many people inside the church, don't have any accurate picture of God drawn from the scriptures to correct those views. In a very credible survey done in America, so okay, this is Americans we're talking about, but I don't think we're wildly different, perhaps a little bit more uh, towards the ignorant scale than the Americans maybe when it comes to biblical knowledge, but the Barna Research Group did a survey <clears throat> And according to their survey, 82% of Americans think that the phrase, God helps those who help themselves, is a Bible verse. C.S. Lewis um, had a subscript to that. He said, as one thief said to the other. But anyway, <laughs> in case you think it's a Bible verse, it isn't. God helps those who help themselves. And in the same poll, at least 12% of adults believe that Joan of Arc was Noah's wife. <laughs> Another survey of graduating high school seniors revealed that over 50% thought Sodom and Gomorrah were husband and wife. And a considerable number of people in another poll thought that the Sermon on the Mount was preached by Billy Graham. Well, the thing that's alarming is you don't get much better results when you survey people inside the church. And I don't say these things to mock or deride those who have ignorance as their base. So much as to highlight, this is, this is the environment that we live in. And it, it, it is concerning because if people have no better views on which to form an opinion about God, no wonder they're not turning to him. But the other thing as we reach towards this series on hope, why we're doing this series, is this. I think we, as God's community, we understand we're meant to be sharing our faith. Theoretically, at least, we understand that. But if we were truly candid with each other, I think our confidence that if we were to introduce our friends to the Lord Jesus Christ, that their hope would increase, our confidence is low. And maybe one of the reasons we're not actually reaching out more is we're not convinced it's worth it. And I hope that this series on where hope is found will put some of our confidence back and actually will stir up hope in ourselves. And so I'm starting this series with talk, a look at where do you find hope in a hurting world? Where can we find hope in a hurting world? And I start from a perspective, and I know most of us do here, that actually hope is right at the heart of Jesus Christ. His life, 
and his purpose and his legacy. And the main reason that I, I would want to push towards this is because I am hopeful of God's love for us. It's at the center of Jesus' message. If you've got a Bible anywhere near you, you might turn to that second reading we had, John 3, 16 and 17. And I know that John 3, 16 is probably the best known verse in the whole of Scripture. But it's John 17 I want us to really just notice this morning, but I'll read them both. God so loved the world, he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, says John, but to save the world through him. Not many people think that. The motivation of Jesus' coming was love. God so loved the world. The Bible doesn't say God was so exasperated with the world he decided it was payback time. Or God so frustrated with the world he decided to turn his back on it once and for all. No, it doesn't. It says God so loved the world he came in person. He chose to draw close. Just last week, I was at a wedding and I uh, had the opportunity to meet someone I hadn't seen for a couple of years. And he was telling me that his life had been through quite a trough over a sustained period of time since we last met. And he said, you know, you really find out who your friends are. And what he meant by that, and you know what he meant, was when you're in trouble, how do you know who loves you? How do you know who cares for you? Well, they spend time with you. They come close to you. They don't avoid you. They don't shut you off. And God did that. God did that with us. When he saw the mess the world was in, he didn't withdraw. He didn't protect himself. He didn't put his fingers in his ears and run off in the other direction. God so loved the world, he sent his son. He came. And some of the comments that people who lived, who were contemporaries with Jesus, some of the comments that they say about him are very telling. In Luke's Gospel, just after Jesus has raised from the dead a young man who, um, this took place in a place called Nain, the people said, God has come to help his people. I love that. God has come to help his people. Or in Mark's gospel, after Jesus has given someone their hearing back, the people said, he does everything well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. And Peter's conclusion, after Jesus had died, preaching in Acts chapter 10, describes Jesus' ministry like this. God anointed Jesus with the Holy Spirit and power. And he went around doing good and healing all who were under the power of the devil because God was with him. And if you and I opened up our New Testaments to pretty much any page in one of the four Gospels, you are bound to find an example of Jesus demonstrating his love, his kindness, his compassion. 
In fact, I think we're so over-familiar with this, we take it for granted. Which is why I had that other reading read to us, the account, do you remember, of the woman who'd lived a sinful life, gate-crashing the party with Simon the Pharisee. And it's a story that Luke paints for us very vividly, so it's very, very easy to picture ourselves there. And while many, many uh, points can be made from this story, I, I'm just going to make a couple. That if you imagine, imagine yourself as one of the bystanders of that incident, when in Simon the Pharisee's house bursts this woman of ill repute, and she kneels at Jesus' feet, and you know what she did, how she wipes him, him clean with her tears, how she worships him. But I wonder if it's ever struck you how much she trusts Jesus, how confident she was that he wouldn't reject her, how the love of the Lord Jesus and the kindness of the Lord Jesus compelled her to take the risk of breaking into someone's supper party. And she just knew that she'd be safe at his feet. She knew that God had come to help his people. She knew that that was the safest place in all the world. Simon didn't. Simon the Pharisee didn't. He completely misses out. If he had seen it, he too could have knelt at Jesus' feet. And he too could have discovered the love of God for him. God has come to help his people. And it is God that's come. It's not just a kind person. That's the other thing to notice in this story is how remarkable it is that Jesus doesn't rebuke the woman. You know, if, if, if you gate-crashed one of my supper parties, or just one of my suppers, you would be most welcome, until he started to kneel and worship me as God. At which point I think, I'd think you're barking. And so would anyone else that was there. And they'd want to say, look, he's a very good guy, this Rupert chap, but he's certainly not worth worshipping. And if it happened to you, you hopefully would feel the same. You'd be very uncomfortable if someone knelt and started to worship you. But Jesus isn't uncomfortable. He turns to the Pharisee and said, well, you're a bit slow. And all the rest of you, where was your worship? God has come to help his people. I don't think that the woman needed to be told that her life had derailed, do you? I suspect she knew that every day of her life. I don't think she was proud of her lifestyle. What she did need to be told is there's love and there's hope for you. God has come to help his people, and that's a reason for hope and joy and rejoicing. And a second reason for hope at the heart of why Jesus came is God has not just come to help his people. God has actually come to save his people. He defines his own mission elsewhere as being to seek and save the lost. Now, this is a point which we find very difficult 
to actually take on board. And I'm noticing as I listen to lots of podcasts, of lots of preachers, and lots of preaching in this church too, and lots of my own preaching, that we duck this one. But I'm going to not duck it and talk about what it means to seek and save the lost and what it means to be lost. And as I sat pondering this, I thought, not many of us today often feel lost. Because, if you're like me, you connect to a GPS. You turn on your phone or whatever it is, and you look up Google Maps or Waze or whatever device you're using, and it directs you, you hope, where you told it you wanted to go. But from time to time, you lose network coverage. And then what happens? Well, then what happens is you just blunder on, and you hope that one way or another, you'll end up in the right place. I can't be the only person that's ever done that. And how do you discover if blundering on has landed you in the right place? Well, using this analogy into how we live life, what are you using as your GPS system? And where is it that you want to get to? And how could you tell if you were on the right road? What are the signs that things are going well? What are the indicators of whether you're lost or not? And from our contemporary viewpoint, I guess, you know, if this talk wasn't being given in church, which means you've got a loaded answer, if you just anticipate stopping people who are out shopping this morning, what the indicators of living a good life would be, they would say probably things like wealth, popularity, fame, power, sex. And the thing is, if that was God's idea of success and what constitutes a full and successful life, I'm sure Jesus would have invested in these things too. But I can't honestly tell you that Jesus' focus was on those things. What he was massively concerned about was restoring a deep connection with God the Father. That seems to be at the heart of what he wanted to do. And he seems to believe that if we could get that right, we would be tapping into a source of very deep-rooted security, of amazing peace, of terrific joy, and of life in abundance. And he came to make that kind of a life possible again, to connect us to the true love of God. God understands that this world is hurting. When you go off to theological college, believe it or not, they try and train you for the job of vicar. And over the course of hundreds of years of people doing this vicaring business, people have learned some of the things to do and some of the things not to do. And you do actually, in the course of a job, you encounter some extremely tricky pastoral situations. And by and large, there are two things that I remember being told you should not say in a pastoral situation when people are in trouble. One is, I know just how you feel. Because it's stupid to say that. Because nine times out of ten, if not ten times out of ten, you don't know just how someone feels. So put that phrase away. Or a second one is, I feel your pain, which is a really naff thing to say if you ever thought of saying it anyway, because you don't feel the other person's pain. 
But when it comes to God, he can look us in the face. And he can say, I know just how you feel. Because he really does know just how you feel. And he can say, Rupert, I feel your pain, because he really does know the pain we're in. There's a very, very interesting little verse tucked away incredibly near to the start of the Bible. The Bible is only six chapters old when we read this in Genesis 6. The Lord observed the extent of human wickedness on the earth, and he saw that everything they thought or imagined was consistently and totally evil. So the Lord was sorry he'd ever made them and put them on the earth. It broke his heart. And in other translations it says, his heart was filled with pain. And where hope comes from in this is, it puts hope in my heart when I realize God is not immune or blind or ignorant of the pain and the brokenness of a world that we live in. Hope arises when I realize that the Bible reveals to me God knows we live in a broken world. Everything around us broken, fractured, and decaying. There's a lot that goes on in our world that we wish didn't. And there's an explanation for this, and God gives the explanation for this. And without that, this is the hardest part of the message to share because it's tough news and because it's hard to receive. And it's the part of a message that says, it's not just that everything around us is broken, but we ourselves are every bit as broken and flawed. I thought I could try a little experiment here. It does get a bit cruel in the second part. Are there anyone here who is uh, a string player, and, like a violin, viola, a cello? Amazing, we have a few hundred people here and only one person who will own up. <laughs> what about, um, what I was gonna say is if, if you play a stringed instrument and you don't tune it and one of the strings is out of tune, well try as you like, you might occasionally get a melody out of it but it's gonna be a struggle. What about, I'm not gonna, don't put your hands up. Don't, don't, don't put your hands up. But I bet there are some people here and you just know, at least you think you know that you can't sing in tune. So everyone else is singing, but you, know, you can sing loud, but you can't sing in tune. So the chance of us actually singing well together while you're here is less. <laughs> I told you it was cruel. But, but you know what I mean. If you've ever sat next to those people, you know what I mean. Louder, yes, but in tune, no. Oh, some of you are cringing. Don't point. <laughs> okay, now, the thing is, it's not just singing. It's actually how we do life. If it was just singing, it'd be all right. We could just decide not to sing. But it's not that. It, it's the way we do life is out of tune. The instrument that we play on is fundamentally not tuned well, both internally and also as far as we interact together. Let me be a bit more specific. Because Jesus is a bit more specific. 
And he tells us where the floor is. Okay, what's at the heart of the floor? The easiest way I can put it is like this. At the heart of the floor seems to be that every single one of us has programmed ourselves to make life one long selfie. We basically are happy, we think we're happy when we arrange everything around what would please me. We are instinctively, by nature, at the center of our own universe. And nearly every decision we make initially is like that. And it's a groove that we're in. It's just like, I did it my way, that dreadful song, is the theme tune of the human race. And our way doesn't turn out to be a good way because right at the heart of us, our heart is poisoned. That's what scripture says. It's unreliable, it's broken, it's flawed. And the Bible actually has a word for this and it's, it's one of the shortest words in the Bible but it has the biggest consequences. And it's a word that we try and, I try and avoid because it's so misunderstood. But understood properly, it's a key to understanding the state of the world we're in, that short little word is the word sin. That is a selfie life. Now, as I was reviewing this talk, I thought, gosh, Rupert, if you were sitting in the congregation, you'd want to interrupt your own sermon, really, and say, hang on, I thought this was going to be a sermon about finding hope, and you're coming at me with the most depressing news ever. And in a sense, you're right, I am. Because unless you realize what's at the heart of our condition, then we're never going to look in the right place for a solution. We'll just be adding to the problem. We're not in a position, really, to link up with the primary purpose of why Jesus came, which is to save us, to save us from our sins, until we link up with the idea that we are flawed. And I know that the ways our eyes are open to this is all sorts of ways. You know, me thumping a lectern and just saying the word sin louder and louder won't do the trick. Sometimes it's exactly the opposite, seeing how glorious the life of Jesus is makes our eyes open to the fact of how flawed we are. But whichever way you arrive at this destination, hope springs from the fact that God knows that we're broken and he's come to fix it. There is no mess that you've made of your life. There is no situation that I've been in or will be in that God can't come alongside and say, Rupert, I'm here to help you. I'm under no illusions about what you're like but I've come because I care and I can solve the primary problem. And hope arises for me and for you and you know for sure that God wants to reconnect you to him. And the place that I know for sure uh, that God wants to reconnect me to him is at the crossroads, the place called Calvary. I just love and resonate with the verse in Jeremiah in 6.16 when he says, this is what the Lord says, stand at the crossroads and look Ask for the ancient paths. Ask where the good way is and walk in it and you'll find rest for your souls. And as I come towards the end of my talk, there are three things I see here which is a sign of hope. Hope that Jesus on the cross wants to be a bridge back into God's company. It's as simple as that. There's an invitation. He's like, Rupert, come on, take me by the hand and I will reconnect you with God the Father. Secondly, we see on the cross, don't we, it's a place where Jesus says, breakages must be paid for, and I've paid. Very simple illustration here. If you go into one of the shops around here, let's say, you know, a shop selling china or something or other, 
and you break something, they have a right to say, look, you must pay for it. And you can't say no, you know. Of course they have a right to ask that. And we, living our flawed and damaged lives, we break things. We, we break ourselves. We break relationships. We do things we regret. We do things that other people regret that we've done, and a price has to be paid. Well, on the cross, you know, Jesus says, I've paid for you, Rupert. Your debts are paid, you're forgiven. And hope starts to come. None of us can sit and put our head in our hands and look at the floor and say, I'm a failure, I have a life without hope, because that's contrary to what Jesus came to say. And then, thirdly, there's hope because God puts his spirit in our lives. And it's not just that the day after you decide to follow Christ, you're going to, going to do better because you're going to try harder. We're going to have a couple of sermons on this, so I don't need to spend all that long. But hope is connected with the Holy Spirit in our hearts. And we can pray that God would stir up the Holy Spirit in our hearts. Because it is a new beginning. It is a new beginning. It is being born again. If anyone is in Christ, they're a new creation. All that flawedness, yeah, you can dig it up if you want to, but fundamentally now, you're not trying to live the selfie life. Or if you are, you haven't understood the Christian message. Paul could say very clearly, the life I now lead, I lead to please the Son of God who loved me and gave his life for me. And that's our theme song now. And the paradox is, we discover when you set off on that life, it is so much more rewarding. It is so much more hopeful. But it's a completely different direction from the life we all used to live. And the last pointer of hope in a hurting and troubled world is just found that not that your troubles cease, because that's make-believe. Your troubles don't cease. Did the disciples live a trouble-free life? Definitely not. But they had joy in any and every situation and hope in any and every situation. And so do we. I love this piece of writing from Bishop Cyprian, which he wrote in the third century to a friend. And with this I close. This seems a cheerful world, Donatus, when I view it from my fair garden under the shadow of these vines. But if I climbed some great mountain and looked out over the wide lands, you know very well what I would see. Brigands on the high road, pirates on the seas, in the amphitheaters, men murdered to please the applauding crowds. Under all roofs, misery and selfishness. It really is a bad world, Donatus, an incredibly bad world. Yet in the middle of it, I found the quiet and holy people. They've discovered a joy which is a thousand times better than any pleasure of this sinful life. They're despised and persecuted, but they care not. They've overcome the world. These people, Donatus, are the Christians, and I am one of them. Let's pray. Let's just take a moment to remember that God sent his son because he loves us. And even though he could speak truth about us and wasn't shy of telling us where we were broken and the damage that we're doing to each other and to ourselves and to his world, 
Even so, he didn't come to condemn us, but to save us. And we pray, Lord Jesus, that these truths, which many of us have lived with for years, you would polish them in our lives. They become real and important to us again. And we pray, Holy Spirit, that you might soften our hearts. And where we have been in danger of losing hope, you'd give it back. Be the lifter of our heads and the shield about us. Thank you for this church, this fellowship. Thank you for one another. Thank you for the opportunities to hear good stories of you at work. Thank you for the chance to draw close to each other and support one another. And we pray that over these weeks we become more and more a community filled with hope and people with your love to share. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.